This is from Galatians chapter 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners in Christ and a servant of sin, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died in the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together and ask for God to bless both the reading of the word and the declaration of it and our receiving of it. Let's just ask him together to make our hearts good soil for this truth. Father, thank you for your word today. We come before it humble, asking you to speak through it to us. We ask that you'd make yourself clear, that you would declare once again the good news of the gospel over our souls that we can be counted righteous and good before your throne. It is profound, and I pray that we would just receive it with glad hearts, that we've been rescued by power that we didn't produce, to fruits that we don't produce, and for glory that only you can claim. So I pray that today, as we look at this truth, our hearts would just be reminded and refreshed and renewed. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Um, after a survey of recent arguments had in my home, which there's plenty of, okay, I, uh, I realized that everyone is looking for something, specifically a way to be good. There's something I did to this mic to make it go crickety today. Can you use a handheld? Yeah, I can use a handheld. All right, here we go. There we go. Um, so the answer to every argument in my home is an argument for who is actually good, okay? Who actually did the right thing? Who did the just thing? Who's good at the end of the day? Almost every single argument could be surveyed, and that's what they're arguing for, that they are indeed good, that they did the right thing, that they can be justified, that their actions are just. And so that is like every argument in our culture today. They're, all of us are looking for a solution to these two questions. Who is good and what is the good life? What is it? When accusations abound, when every argument abounds, everyone's seeking to justify themselves with an answer to those two questions. Who's good? What is the good life? It's not just my kids. It's actually at the root of almost every conflict in marriage, in parenting, in your schools, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. 
everyone is making an argument and an answer for these two questions. How can you be good? What does it mean to have a good life? Everyone's not just looking for an answer to those. They're looking for a pathway to be good. Everyone's following a set of rules, norms, morals, measuring themselves against the sea of other answers to that question with the same kinds of rules but only different solutions, different plans of redemption. They're abundant. We have a long list of answers to those two questions. And there's not only answers to them, there's a thousand different ways to be canceled today, to be bad. If there's ways to be good, there's also a dozen ways to be bad in others' opinions. Uh, and so we come to this question today that Paul is answering throughout the book of Galatians. Is there a way to be good specifically with your past regrets, your present fears for the future that you hold before not just the landscape of public opinions and the court of public opinions, but with God himself. The scriptures hold out this different, more solid truth that there is a highest authority, God himself. And he's made it very clear through the scriptures how we can be good. He defines goodness. He defines a way in which we can be made right before him. And it's not provided to us with some thin layer of confidence. It's banking on our good works. It's given to us as a glad gift that we can receive with joyful, humble hearts, confident that our only hope is Jesus Christ. So how do we live in that goodness? How do we live from that goodness? The gospel is an answer to both of those questions, and not according to public opinion, but according to God himself. So both are answered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This reality that he would join his life to ours and bring us before his throne with no fear, but utter joy and confidence that he's made us good through this reality that was beyond our reach. And that's why we want the gospel, this answer to those questions, to be central to who we are as a church. We need to regularly be reminded of it, always bringing ourselves back to this reality that only God could save us. There's nothing good that I've done that I could bring to make myself good before God himself. And I love this. It comes from the gospel primer, a gospel primer for Christians. It says, the gospel is so foolish, according to my natural wisdom, so scandalous, according to my conscience, so incredible, according to my timid heart, that it is a daily battle to receive the full scope of it as I should. There's simply no other way to compete with the forebodings of my conscience, the condemnings of my heart, the lies of the world and the devil, than to overwhelm such things with daily rehearsings of the gospel. I love that. So, Paul seeks to beat this message of the gospel into our heads throughout the book of Galatians. Over and over and over, he's going to say, it is not by our works that we're saved, it's because of the gift of God, so that no one can boast. That's from Ephesians chapter 2. And so, in response to this, he gives three things in this passage. They're all throughout the book, but three things. First of all, that justification is by faith. Second, what it looks like to live this good life is in two parts. First, to be crucified with Christ, and then to live by faith. What is the life of faith? So that's where we're going today. First, to be justified by faith, then crucified with Christ and living by faith. 
what does that look like? What does it mean? I hope that those uh, become more clear to us today as we look at this. First, being justified by faith. This is a foundational truth for every Protestant religion. Every From the Reformation, Martin Luther said that it was the principal feature of the gospel that we're justified by faith. And he puts at the very beginning of this time, of this passage, two groups of people in contrast to one another. He says, we're Jews. We're not like you, you Gentile sinners. It, it sounds like he's setting himself up like as being really much holier than this other group of people. But he's putting these two group of people, groups of people in contrast to one another so that they would see that there's really only one solution for people that have done really, really good things in their religious life and the people who've never done a good thing in their life at all. Pagans, religious, all of us have one need in common and one solution. The gospel is this great equalizer from the start. That's what he's saying in verse 15. Everyone has the same need, the same degree of justification by God, uh, before God with ourselves. Whether you come with a list of things you've done wrong or a list of things you've done right, all of us stand on level ground before the throne of God. And before you go, well, that's really bad news. There's really good news in his response to this equal need. Everyone has the same singular option for redemption. That everyone is equally justified, not by their works or the lack of good things or the presence of good things or the lack of bad things or the presence of bad things. It's because of the presence of one person, Jesus Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, equally redeemed, we have confidence. He says, we know, we know this. In verse 17, we're not justified by works of the law. We're not justified by works. So what does it mean to be justified? For everyone who knows the answer to this, let's just rehearse it again in our heads as if we've never heard this before, okay? If you've been around the Christian faith for a long time, we know these things in our head that being justified by God, the London Baptist Confession said it's a pardoning of sins. It's accounting and accepting before God of us as righteous. Not based on anything that we could do. The New City Catechism said justification means our declared righteousness before God made possible by Christ's death and resurrection for us. It means that we've, put, we've been put the stamp of right standing before God because of what Christ has done in our place for our sins. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. It asks this question, how is someone righteous before God? How do you answer that question? And then it's answered with this great response. It'll, it'll be on the screen. I think. I think that it'll be on the screen. Only by true faith. There it is. I love this. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, I've never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never, I had nor committed any sin, and as if my, I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ had rendered to me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Isn't that good news? Justification by faith means that there's some things that we can assume. And it assumes some things in this passage. First of all, that there is a desire for peace. There's a universal desire for peace for every person. 
Whether you know that that's before God or whether you look at others to try to find the solution to that, ultimately we're looking to Christ Jesus to resolve this desire for peace with God. It assumes, first, that there is a God and that to Him we're accountable. That everyone, um, ultimately, will stand before God Himself as a judge. So we're not looking to others' opinions. We're not looking to a self-evaluation. You don't get to the end of the year and say, here's how I think I did this year, Lord. You don't ask for a peer evaluation and ask others, how do you think I'm doing? You don't even... (laughs) In in response to this question of accountability with God, it doesn't even matter how your wife or your husband thinks that you're doing. It doesn't matter how how pop culture evaluates you and what they would say is good or right or wrong. Ultimately, it means that there is going to be an evaluation of God himself, that he's the ultimate jury, court, and judge, and one day, all of us will stand before him And if we're trusting in any other thing, anything other than what Christ has done for us on our behalf for our sins, then it will not be enough. So he's saying, look, you Gentile sinners, you know that you can't stand before God just. We Jews even know that. We've done everything right. And so there's not any higher court than God himself. That's what it's assuming. And it's not by works of the law. It's by faith. In Jesus Christ. And now he's going to put these two things as the response of faith. What it looks like to have faith. First, to be crucified in Jesus Christ and then to live by faith in him. So if it's not by works, how do we do it? He begins to ask this question by saying, should, we, should Christ become a servant of sin? In other words, if it's not up to us to make ourselves right with God, What's the motivator? What makes us live in a righteous way? How does it come about? It comes about by faith. Now, faith has been described as the outstretched arm of a beggar. It's ultimately our need brought to God's supply, believing that he will indeed supply it. Our need for redemption, our need for mercy, the confidence that God will supply where we're lacking. That he even knows our future sins, our past sins, everything that we haven't even done yet, and that he indeed died on the cross for everything that we would do. Past tense. Everyone who's walking by faith is believing first that Christ died for their sins, that he loved them and gave his life for them. He throws out this hypothetical question. So does our justification by faith alone, does that mean that we can just go on sinning? Is that what it means? Is Christ some kind of servant to sin? So that we can just live in such a way that we just put it on the grace card and say, you know, I'll just put that on the card. He asked this question, and he answers it multiple times through his writing. Paul asked this question in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He asked it again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in them? And he mentions this death. Does Christ serve us in our salvation so that we can just go on living however we want to live? Well, if it's not up to us, right, that that would be like one of the logical conclusions that you could err on, right? And I see this all the time. Confidence in some past decision 
Our confidence that we walked an aisle or prayed a prayer or did something or went on some mission trip and we knew and experienced something in the past that has no relevance in our presence, that is not what Christ died for. He didn't die to serve your selfish desires. He died to redeem you and to live through you. So, what do we do with this? How can we possibly be motivated if Christ paid it all? What is the motivator? What happens beyond this? And this is where these two questions of justified by faith and we're sanctified in as a continual process of walking with and embodying the works of Christ by grace through faith. He's working his life out in the context of believers. And so justified by faith means at one point in time, we stand righteous before the throne of God. And then it doesn't become this license to sins. It it becomes this freedom to walk in him and for him to live his life out of us. So verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Two parts to this life of faith. First, we're crucified with Christ. And there's two parts of what he's tearing down in this. He says, am I supposed to rebuild what's been torn down? There's something that has died for everyone who's a believer. That's ultimately what the invitation of Christ was, to pick up a cross and follow me to take it up daily. And the invitation of Christ isn't just to receive this good gift, but also to be crucified with Him. There's something, if we want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus, we also have to participate in the dying with Jesus. So what does this mean? It's like this big, I don't mean physically that you guys are physically dying right now. There's something about our flesh that has to be brought to death, crucified with Christ. And there's two parts. First, the desire to be good by any other means other than Christ. And the desire for our own sinful passions. Both of those things have to come to death. And it will feel like death. So, if you're the kind of person that's really, really good at being really good, it will feel like a certain death to stop trusting in those things. To release your anxiety to say, Lord, I'm really trusting that your sacrifice is enough. That's one of the things that has to be torn down, as he said, or crucified. You no longer can pursue the things that you desire. You come under this surrendered lordship, saying, Lord, I want what you want for my life. In verse 18, he says, if I rebuild what I've torn down, I will prove to be a transgressor. In other words, If I start building up what I thought was dead, then it's going to result in sin. Two things that have been torn down are means of being good, are sinful desires that are opposed to God. And in both of those things, we see this great symbol of that in our baptism. In just a few weeks, like October, actually more than a few weeks, in about a month, we're going to celebrate baptism here, okay? And if you've ever witnessed a baptism here, we completely dunk them. I mean, we go all the way under... It's a watery grave. And then they come on up, okay? The symbolism of this is that there's something about my old life that's been put to death, that's been buried with Christ, and there's something new that has raised up in me. It's the life of Christ that's coming alive to me. 
The desires that I once have, they no longer suit me. They no longer satisfy me. I've released the futility of those desires and their pursuits. I've died to those things. It's the, the public acknowledgement that any life outside of Jesus Christ leads to spiritual death. Christians are the people who've chosen death in the temporary and futile things so that we can have eternal life, everlasting life, present in the now, not just some future reality where we'll be with Jesus face to face, the present reality of his spirit embodying everyone who believes. It goes on to say it like this in Galatians later, chapter five, verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That means the things that you wanted that were opposed to God, they're dying. They're regularly having to be put to death, and that is a discipline. You don't wake up one day and realize that it's all died. It's all gone. There's none of you where all of your flesh is not clinging on to your spiritual life, trying to tear you down and build you up in some other way. Romans chapter 6, it's talking about baptism and the symbolism of it. And it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's, that's the negative part of crucifixion. But the great part is that three days later, after Christ was crucified, he rose again and he gives that kind of power to everyone who believes. He brings something new in the life of a believer. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says that anyone who's in Christ Jesus is a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. It's no longer I who live. That's why Paul could confess that. He's saying, it's not me anymore. The, the way of faith is that there's something that used to drive all of my desires, drove me, all of my desires to be good. They drove me, they motivated me, and now it's no longer me. It's not those things that are pushing me forward. There's a new life that lives in me, and it's Christ himself. So what does the life of faith look like? A few things. First, it looks like faith in the Son of God. The reality of who God is, the kingdom coming through Jesus Christ, that he's ultimately, he's revealed himself, yes, in creation. You can look around and say, it's beautiful. It's amazing. God's revealing himself in the heavens and all of these things declare his glory. He's revealed himself in the written word. We can see that through this, that it testifies to itself that you can read God's word and there's some kind of supernatural power to these words coming to life for everyone who believes. To everyone who doesn't believe, it might be foolishness, but for those of us who are redeemed, we read God's word and it reveals who he is to us. And then ultimately, through Jesus Christ, we look at his life and we say, there's something unique and powerful and profound and eternal about this person, Jesus Christ. He is God himself. So we live the life of faith by looking to Christ Jesus, by looking at his life and saying, this is who God is. Not just who he is in his life of perfection, but in his sacrifice that he would lay down his life for everyone who believes. And we need to preach that gospel to ourselves daily. Jerry Bridges said uh, in, in the... Um, pursuit of holiness, the discipline of grace. He says, you need to preach the gospel to yourself daily. And then he explains why. Here's why. Because our worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Both of them, you're equally in need. 
So if you're adopted into this family, you begin to take on the family traits. The old you is dead. There's a new miracle of life that's living in you. Past, present, future is ultimately settled. So we can walk with the greatest questions of, am I good, settled? And now we walk in the reality of the question, how do we live this good life? It's by faith in the Son of God, what He's ultimately settled through through Christ's death, burial, resurrection, but it's also His power in us, united to Christ. This mystery is profound, that every person who believes in Him is united to Him, is one with Christ Jesus. Before we live for any purpose, God gives us this ultimate purpose to live not only in allegiance to Him, but in complete alignment with Him. His life, His life living through the lives of believers. Paul's saying, look, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Ultimately, Christ is living out His life through everyone who believes. And He's inviting us into this relationship with Him where He's becoming Lord through His affection for us. He's winning our affections to Him and He's continuing to win us over day after day through the declaration of what He's done and by the reality of what He's doing today. So Christ, who lives in me? And I don't want you to get the idea that that grace, this supernatural grace, this miracle of God coming and living among us, that the Holy Spirit would empower us and embody those who believe. I don't want you to get the idea that it's opposed to your effort. Because grace is not opposed to your effort. Dallas Willard said, it's not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So don't go thinking that that you could somehow deserve it. But one thing you can think is that this life of faith is a struggle and it will take discipline in order to hear and see and walk in this reality that Christ lives in you. And him living in you is both personal and it's powerful. It's personal in the reality. Like Paul said, he loved me. For everyone who truly is transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ, the truth that he died on the cross at some point in time has to become personal. You know what he hung up there for. You know what it was. I mean, something very real to you, some mistake, some regret, something that the enemy would accuse you of, he is specifically hanging, bloodied on that tree. And you know that he loved you in that demonstration of his love. That's the ultimate demonstration. Romans 5, he demonstrated his love for you in that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He sacrificed his life ultimately. So it's personal for us. The life of faith becomes not this abstract exchange of ideas that yes, Jesus died for sin. I know the Roman road of faith. It becomes very personal. And it becomes power released for everyone who believes. The true life of a believer is God's power being released as he's working, accomplishing his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. That means that he's participating with you as you cultivate your heart towards the things of him. This foundation of faith that releases you from the greatest question also releases you with freedom to pursue the greatest purposes, to cultivate worship and to the release of Christ's power in the world through you who believe. 
And so I have one simple question in closing today. It's this. Whose life are you living? Could be that you're thinking like, I live for others' expectations. You think about the people around you and think, I'm living so that the people around me will never be disappointed in me. You could be living for yourself. Maybe selfish and ultimately powerless to accomplish the things that would satisfy yourself. Or is Christ living his life through you? Personally, acquainted with all of your ways, united with you through faith, living out his power of resurrection in the world, inviting you, yes, to die, but also to participate in resurrection power. So is Christ living his life through you? I love this description in 2 Corinthians of Christ triumphant, leading us. It says this, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The the answer to this question, whose life are you living? There's great potential in the answer. If Christ is living his life through you, there's a triumphal procession. He's saying, come with me as we march forward and come and let the aroma of what I'm doing and who I am and how I work just reek through your life. Let it be the aroma that everyone smells when they're around you. This aroma of God's grace that by being in your presence, they would have been in the very presence of God because He's present with you. Displaying His power his mercy, his grace in the world through everyone who believes. Triumphal procession. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing if the church of Jesus Christ walked through these doors into all of our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our homes, into our workplaces as some just fragrant aroma that just fills the rooms of every place that we live Christ and his grace is not just the power to save us. It is the power by which he is displaying his glory to the world. That's ultimately what Paul's saying. He's saying, I I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, and it's Christ who lives through me. I love this story about Corey Ten Boom, and I'm, I'm seriously ending with this. It's 1947, okay? Corey Ten Boom, uh, if you don't know or if you're not familiar with her, World War II has ended. She's living in Holland. She and her family had participated in hiding Jewish people to escape Nazi Germany. Eventually, she and her sister Betsy was arrested. She watched as her sister Betsy slowly died in a concentration camp. She survives. The war is over. And she's regularly speaking and telling her story. She's invited to come and speak in Germany, and she goes and she speaks of God's forgiveness in Germany to a group of people who desperately need to hear it, right? 
And she would speak about the sea of forgetfulness, where all of God's, the, the sea of God's forgetfulness, where all of your sins can be forgiven. And she would always tell this story that there's a big sign posted by the sea that says, no fishing. She loved to tell that story. I love that. One day, she tells this story. She's in Germany. Germany. And on this particular night, most of the time when she would finish speaking, everyone would just quietly exit the room. There was just so much solemn reverence for what had happened. But this particular night, she finished speaking, and there's this man in the back of the room that starts making his way to the front of the room. Everyone's walking out. He's walking up toward her. And as he's walking, she recognizes him as one of her captors. And when he gets to the front, he reaches out his hand and he said, I really appreciate the message that you brought, particularly of the sea of forgetfulness and how there's no fishing there. She begins to fumble in her pocketbook. She wonders if he's going to recognize her because she recognizes him as a man who had been her captor, who had been abusive, who was awful to her and to her sister specifically in Ravenbrook, where her sister had died. And in this moment, he comes up to her and says, since the war, I've become a Christian, and I, I love this message of God's forgiveness, and I just wonder, would you perhaps forgive me, sister, for what I've done? And she pauses, and this is how she describes this moment in her book, Tramp for God. You should read it, it's good. <laughs> I stood still there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of heart. And I prayed, Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the stretched out to me, the one stretched out to me. And as I did... An incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into the joints of my hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole be being, bringing tears into my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard, the former prisoner, and I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Romans 5, 5, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. I just want to remind you, there is absolute limits to everything you are humanly capable of. And if you're walking the walk of faith, you will feel the end of your own strength. And it's in those moments where God invites us to lift out our hands and say, Lord, give me strength, both to forgive those who've wounded us, to walk forward with this walk of faith, a triumphal procession with the aroma of Jesus Christ. And it's not by our own strength. There is, we, we can be winsome and beautiful, but the Holy Spirit is the one who wins hearts. And he longs to do that through the likes of us. Just living out his life. 
in this life of faith where we're daily dying and he's daily living his powerful person through the likes of us. Let's pray that it would be so. Would you join me in praying that? Father, thank you for this, your word. My own heart feels the limits today of my love, my own forgiveness, my own strength. And for those that are weary in this room and they've already declared with their words, Lord, I need you, I need you, I need you. Every hour I need you. I pray that the, that reality of their need would come and meet today with your Holy Spirit. Your Holy Spirit would be released with power among all of us who believe that we wouldn't be motivated by trying to be good or trying to avoid the bad thing, but we'd be motivated out of love for you because you gave your life. You love us. You laid down your life for us. I pray that that powerful truth would transform us from the inside out. For those whose faith are in you, that I pray that, that the thing that feels impossible to them today, the forgiveness that feels impossible, the calling that feels impossible, the burden that feels impossible, that you would show them their only hope is you. And they'd bring their weary hearts before you and receive what only you can give, true life. And I pray this for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.